uh, I thought that for today we would go ahead and continue our conversation about magic in cinema and see where that goes. Yay! And so we'll just move along with that. So by way of just a tiny intro here, uh, our continuation of magic in cinema. That's what's coming up next. Stay tuned, couch and coffee table. This is Couch and Coffee Table. I'm Michael Perry. I'm Heather Perry. And for today, we're going to continue our conversation that we started just a short time ago. Uh, last, if, if you saw, or excuse me, if you heard, <laughs> if you heard our last episode, uh, we talked a bit about uh, magic and cinema, and we're going to do a continuation of that today. Uh, did you want to lead off? Or did you... Just a quick recap. So I know we talked about Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie. Yeah. We talked a little bit about Willow. We talked yeah. about uh, some Andre Norton. Yes, things. yes, we, we did. Because I brought up, yeah, I brought up mm -hmm. Beastmaster, which initiated the Andre yeah. Norton uh, exposition. <laughs> yes, um, <sorry. laughs> No, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. That's, that's uh, what we're here for. I mean, you know. We talked a little bit about Merlin. Gandalf. We did. Wizard archetypes. We talked yeah. briefly about Harry Potter. Yeah, Harry got mm -hmm. kind of an honorable mention. I wanted to double back to Harry Potter just for a second and kind of get your opinions as far as what are what are the differences between Dumbledore and Gandalf? Oh. Because I remember mm -hmm. Ian McKellen mm -hmm. was asked after uh, Richard Harris mm -hmm. passed on. Yeah. He had done the first couple of Harry Potter films, and they asked Ian McKellen if he wanted to take up the part of Dumbledore, mm -hmm. and he very, very politely said, "No, thank you. I've already done one powerful wizard. Mm -hmm. Let's let somebody else have a go. You know, let's yeah. let someone else have a chance." I think was basically his attitude towards that. So, yeah. Dumbledore is is kind of a Glenda. I mean, he's he's using Harry as a as a cat's paw in a lot of things. Um, mm, he's okay. incredibly manipulative. He's unreliable, and he's he's just an ass. <laughs> <laughs> and like it, it creeps up on you because like you you read the books and Harry Harry is a completely unreliable narrator. You cannot trust anything Harry tells you because Harry has the observation powers of a brick. I mean, okay. He's, he's dim. And the author does a lot of. Well, he follows a luck child trope. So yeah. there's there's nothing inherent that Harry does or has learned that earns him what he achieves. It's all yeah. birthright, it's all prophecy. Like the one thing he kind of has going for him is his, his disarming spell. And that's an awful lot to hinge, like a hero trope on. But, you know, the author does. And um, her magical community, her magic world has has some very ill thought out limitations. Like, you know, reading the first couple books, it's very much, let's throw whimsy at this thing 
until okay. like, we've, we've got an inch thick okay. coating on the walls. Uh, whimsy, whimsy, whimsy. And then we're not thinking about how this works in the real world. We're not thinking about what the economy of a hidden wizard society would be. What What's the price of wizards who are stuck in a Dickensian universe? Uh, okay. You know, swagging up for Christmas with the holly around the thing. Um, and then we've got the magical creatures, and, and she she works into some more somber themes as the series goes on, and, and that's great. Uh -huh. But she's also she's fighting against the early tropes she herself set. So I just I find it a limiting series, and just yeah, it's it bugs me. It bugs me. I honestly, what I enjoy most about the Harry Potter universe is the fan fiction. <laughs> have taken the characters and have fleshed out the backstories and have fleshed out the universe and have corrected some things and if you hunt around you can find some really phenomenal fix that just round it out and make a satisfying story um, okay I, I recommend reading the whole series at least once versus the movies uh, get them at the library so you don't give any more money to the author um and, and the reason I say that is she's got some very problematic and archaic prejudice that uh, is very harmful. So let's not let's not support that. <clears throat> Gandalf is, by contrast, cantankerous and unreliable, but unreliable mostly in The Hobbit when he's he's having to leave the group and go do things and then pop back in, and he never quite explains where he's been or how how he's how he's gone but you, you get a little bit more explanation yeah. lord of the rings and he keeps his word you know if he uh -huh. says by dawn on the third day look to the east that's where he's going to be on shadowfax at helm's deep and yeah he absolutely risks himself um i won't say in a way that dumbledore never does because dumbledore does but it's when that comes down in the series Ah, it's it just it just reads kind of clumsy to me. Okay. So yeah, um, I struggle with that particular uh, particular world. Um, it, great that it got so many people reading again. Phenomenal. But Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter? Harry Potter. Lord of the Rings is steady. I mean, it's always grabbed people up. It's um, yeah. It is. Uh, it's it's a bit to approach. Like the language in Tolkien is very dense. It is. Um, you're gonna you're gonna be uh, reading Ponzi elf poetry for a long time, um, mm. and he he does wax on about trees occasionally, but with good reason, I think. Um, so yeah. the language is a little more archaic. Uh, Harry Potter is written in a, in a more approachable level. Um, like they say, Stephen King writes at about a fifth grade reading level generally speaking and that is yeah. approachable to a lot of different readers where tolkien is a little harder to get through sometimes um and i i've never managed to make it through the similarian for example it's just it's way too hard for me <laughs> i've wanted to start that book Same. and at some point i'd like to i yeah. actually am wanting to put it into my uh i'm wanting to do a reading yeah. schedule for myself yes, and yes. so i i've looking more towards this winter like right around november december maybe even at the offset very 
on into January, hopefully being we're... able to get into that. But I also have unfinished tales and a yeah. whole bunch of other yeah. talking related things yeah. that I want to get to as I well. I think you're going to need to scorecard because I, I think, I think that would help honestly. And, and like, no, no, uh, no lie there. I, I, that's what I would want is I want a scorecard because I, I occasionally I go, um, I get lost in, in the internet and I go down the wormhole and okay. I'll be looking up stories of the, the sons <clears throat> of, me. uh, the sons of whoever, and the, you know, how the Silmarils came into being and there's Baron and Luthien and I need a dang map. <laughs> well, what I may do is approach it like an English comp assignment yeah. and just keep notes mm -hmm. because you mentioned that and I'm like, yeah. Well, being in college, I, I had to do English comp things, mm -hmm. comparison, contrast, and all kinds of stuff like that. So I may just take it as just an English reading assignment and just break it down. There are a lot of really good YouTube things about the Samorlian. There's a lot of okay. really good token lore uh, blogs that are out there. I follow a couple people on YouTube about that. I'll, I'll, I'll show them to you. Okay. Um, all right. But occasionally when Michael was working nights and I had a more of a day schedule, sometimes I would fall asleep on the couch while I was waiting for him to come back from, from work. And I would put on YouTube on the TV and I'd fall asleep to these Tolkien blogs because I would just find a thread and let it play. So I'd be half asleep <laughs> listening to, you know, the lay of Gilgalad or whatever. <laughs> And what this particular YouTuber had found in terms of, you know, place and history in the Tolkien universe and the significance of the story in the, the whole arc of Lord of the Rings, which was super, uh, super helpful, but it's dense, yep. it's dense reading, it's dense story, it's, it's layers and layers and layers. And of course, uh, Tolkien himself didn't consider the Simorillion publishable it was still background notes and stuff and piles yeah. of thing and his sons went ahead and organized it for publication uh, after his death yeah yeah so it's one of the post token Tolkien, excuse me mm -hmm. um pieces and it would have been real interesting to see him finish yeah. put fine-tune that a little bit better before his death mm -hmm because I think you would have got a more interesting and rounded book. But the fact that it exists and yeah. it's out there, big, huge plus. I mean, he's, he's king of world building. So yeah, yeah. And I, I, I totally agree with that. For it, for other authors. And, and I think fantasy and science, well, not so much science fiction, but fantasy authors, I think every single one of them compares themselves yeah. At some point or another to Tolkien, whether they're trying for that or if they're just uh, using it as a yardstick, what I don't want to do or, yeah. you know, yeah. I want to be different from, yeah. is still a measure, still a measure for people. Oh, yeah. I What I like, uh, the dip, well, the differences that I wanted to bring up, uh, with Harry, you mentioned him as like the luck child, is that yeah. what you And... There, there, there is something to be said about the luck child and everything. Harry Potter being almost an archetype now mm, yeah. for that, just yeah. because he's been brought to the forefront. Versus in The Hobbit and in Lord of the Rings, 
what you come away with at its core is that the Bagginses are homebodies. Okay? Bilbo is a homebody. At home in the Shire, you know, if you've seen the animated uh, version of The Hobbit by Rankin and Bass, there's a point whenever they say, well, think of good things. And he says, eggs and bacon, my garden, a twilight, cakes. He's a homebody. Yeah. He's a homebody who got shoved out the door by Gandalf. Yes. Pure and simple. Gandalf sat there and said, well, my buddy's a homebody. He needs something to do, so let's just put him on an adventure. <laughs> Dangle him in front of a dragon. It'll turn out fine. It, yeah, it'll be, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. <laughs> He'll survive. Here's a pack of dwarves. Have fun. You know. <laughs> It's it's no big deal. It's no big deal. He, we'll we'll have cake or pie whenever we get back to the Shire. It'll be fine, fine, I tell you. And the same thing fine. happened with Frodo. Frodo oh, yeah. was content to just live out his days at the Shire. Bilbo took off. That's it. You know. Oh well, there's this thing about a ring, and well, you know, you gotta. Oh bother. <laughs> I got I got to shove you out the door, same as I did your uncle, and um, just I don't know why you Bagginses are the ones that have to do this, and they're sitting there going, "We don't know either. <laughs> We're homebodies." On another door, yeah, they're reluctant. They're reluctant heroes, but they they both rise to the occasion. Yeah, but they're very much they. They both rise to the occasion. Neither one of them want to do this, mm -hmm. and. That is what makes them so endearing. They're they're not the ones that, you know, divine right or, you know, right. the luck child or anything yeah. like that. They just basically are sitting there going, I just want to have a cuppa. You know, that's it. I just want my tea. I want some sausages and, and eggs and toast in the morning. Maybe a little bit of jam. I want to be able to enjoy my elevensies. Yes. You know, that's Second it. That's all. That, that really is the Hobbit. I yeah. mean, that, and yeah. a lot of people are like that. I was charmed at the end of uh, my doctor's appointment because the woman checking me out uh -huh. at the end behind the desk and was setting up appointments and everything, she talked about elevensies and second breakfast and stuff <laughs> like that. Nice. She was, she was also trying to munch a little bit while uh -huh. taking care of work and eating and yeah. everything. I She apologized and said, I'm sorry, I... I, that probably doesn't look that professional. I'm sitting there going, you know, I understand eating on the job. I understand, yeah. you know, you, you got to do this when you can. I was not offended. I, the reason why I bring this up at all is, like I say, I was charmed at the fact that she mentioned 11Zs and the rest of this. I, I had a really good rapport talking to her. Nice. I like that that's permeated through society as it has. I mean, there's a lot of... When when Lord of the Rings was published, it was it was percolating through kind of the music yeah. scene, and you had oh yeah people writing songs about it. And Tolkien apparently had a beef with the Beatles, who wanted to do a film. Yeah, uh, and he was adamantly opposed to that. But then he was like, "Hey, Led Zeppelin, go ahead and write some songs." Well, Led Zeppelin <laughs> just kind of snuck it in. Oh, <laughs> oh, okay. I think Zeppelin didn't really ask permission. I see. They Same didn't. with Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd just kind of, and Pink Floyd I think was more inspired by. Uh, okay. They didn't actually put an actual reference in there. Yeah. Versus Zeppelin, who actually did. Oh yes. Do at least a couple. Yeah. 
Yeah. I can think of two different albums that have two different songs where they point mm-hmm. blank, you know, you're, you're getting yeah. Lord of the Rings references. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for those of you playing at home and aren't familiar, uh, one is definitely the Battle of Evermore. Yeah. From Zeppelin IV. And the other one would be from Zeppelin II, and that is Ramble On. Yeah. Yeah. Because you hear him mention Gollum. Yeah. We cannot, we cannot let this opportunity pass by without mentioning Leonard Nimoy singing Bilbo Baggins. This is true. <laughs> this is true. Since we're, since we're on the Lord of the Rings right now, uh, yeah, Leonard Nimoy singing and this song is out there. It's yeah. on YouTube, The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. It's a trip. Yeah. It's a trip. Yeah. It's probably up there in terms of iconic with uh, Bill Shatner's version of Green Tambourine or Tambourine Man. I'm not as familiar with Tambourine Man. I'm more, I remember more, and I think I have, yeah, I had this version somewhere of him doing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Okay, I've also heard him do Rocket Man. I've heard him do Rocket so, Man. Uh, Shatner singing is Shatner exclaiming. Um, it's it's so wonderfully over the top, and he did it. He did it in the seventies too, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's young Bill Shatner just Shatnering all over everything. I forgive it because of the energy he brings. Absolutely. I forgive it just because it's the energy Absolutely. he brings. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's iconic. It's, you, you can't, you can't. It's a weakness of mine. Yeah, I, you, you cannot know, I'll, deny it is what it is. I'll forget, I'll forgive it because he does it with such energy that, yeah, yeah I'll I, let it pass. I don't know if he could, if he could summon the Shatner spirit to do it now, but I'm sure he could I if it like called for it. Try. Yeah, I might like to see him try. Bill Shatner, if you're listening, give us a song. <laughs> yeah, but <sighs> what what would you want him to do? Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> As his buddy no. Lenny already did. Yeah, that. I know, I know. Um, honestly, he did. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'd want him to do a classic or something modern. Oh, I a little bit of both. A little okay. bit of both. A little bit of <laughs> I was just trying to think of what Rolling Stones song. Oh dear. I'd like to, he he's done the Beatles, so why not yeah. the Stones? Yeah. But then again, I'd also love to hear him do a Pearl Jam song. Oh my. <laughs> Jeremy. Yeah, I was thinking Jeremy. Oh, couldn't be any other one. <laughs> or even flow, maybe. But yeah. Even flow, daughter. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean. You do have to rely on the liner notes, though, because Eddie Vedder doesn't open his teeth when he sings. So he, uh, you can't quite understand him. Uh, again. Off topic. <laughs> yeah, again. Yeah. Uh, a good singer, one that I, I forgive a lot of things on Absolutely. because he's, he's, you know. He is not the first singer to make a living not being understood. Um, and you can, yeah, you there's a lot of them like that. Bits and pieces. He's a you can, a yeah. musician. Uh, there's a lot to recommend him. We could go on oh, about yeah. that. But let's, yeah. let's circle back around. To Circling the... back around real quick. Um, <laughs> but that I just wanted to throw that out there, the differences between yeah. Lord of the Rings and uh, Harry Potter. Now, you've not, neither one of us have seen the Netflix adaptation of Wheel of Time. No. And I don't think you've read the books. No. Okay. I've read the books. I've read most of the books. Wheel of Time is, I think, intended in scope to be Tolkien-esque. 
because the author has a world with centuries of history, with older systems being eclipsed by new legends and new characters. There's six main characters in the first couple of books. There's prophecy, there's a luck child, there's, um, for a while the books were careening between, you know, you have a political faction between a king and sort of a religious organization. There's, there's tension there, there's intrigue over the throne in a different kingdom. There's uh, like big evil Sauron-esque bad guys. There's uh -huh. uh, monsters called Trollocs that are like orcs. There's something called Fades that are like ring wraiths. Um, there's, uh, there's women who are the, uh, and I'm probably gonna mispronounce this, the Aesedi Ace, or Aeset, I can't say it. It's A-E-S-S-E-D-I is how it's spelled. And so my brain does something with that and makes the same sort of noise when it sees it, but I can't actually verbalize that because my brain is weird. Uh, it's the peril of reading science fiction from childhood. It's your brain just kind of does a thing when it sees words you can't put together. Uh, anyway, these, these women are, are almost witches in the, in the universe. And men have that ability as well, except they're cursed. And most of them went completely insane and burnt out and destroyed everything several generations before our main characters start out. But it's Tolkien-esque. Last count, there were like 15 books. They're about three to 500 pages a piece. For a while, Robert Jordan was cranking out one a year. And this was, this was 92 to 96 was really I was in undergrad and one of my friends and I would would reread all the books that have been published prior to the new release. And then we would lock ourselves in our dorm rooms and devour the latest book. And usually we could get it down in like two to four days. Uh -huh. And then we'd, we'd meet each other in a cafeteria when we were done, like bleary eyed, scratchy voiced, <laughs> completely strung out on sleep. And, uh, would try to talk about the book, but since we'd eaten it so fast, neither one of us could remember a lot. Like it was yeah. really good. Did you get to the part? Yeah, that was a great part. I don't remember. It's really good. <laughs> and then we'd we'd kind of catch up on ourselves. The next the next new release, the next year, we'd be rereading all all the books leading up to. Um, That's cool. So I'm curious to see like how the author describes magic is mm -hmm. ordinary people can't see anything you'd see like in, in one scene he actually describes it like you and i would be staring at each other and that's all that someone else would see but since we're practitioners we would be able to see the flows of mm -hmm. the the energy and the power uh, and we would be weaving shapes and spells around each other and we'd be fighting that way and um so he has very very good descriptions of that in the world and i'm curious to see how they did that with the netflix thing um i heard good reviews about it and then i didn't hear anything else about it so i don't know if it was a very short series and then they're done or if they're going to come back to it or it seems like every time i hear a new series it's canceled or it's only designed to be six episodes or you know i'm not yeah. sure i'm not sure what's going on with that it's it seems like it's short little things mm -hmm. even if you've got a property that you could spend years on if you if you tried.
Yeah. And um, that magic system is, I think, kind of classic fantasy. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you've got wizards and they do spells and the spells leave like big trails of light in the air or, you know, fireballs and, and whatnots. Hmm. I'd be interested to see what you thought of the, what you thought of it. Yeah, I, I definitely would like to delve into it and yeah. everything. I'm always looking for another series to look right. at. So it's also something you need a scorecard for. Yeah, I that's mean, that's also I I seem to get into those as well. But yeah. I enjoy that because for me it's breaking down characterization of yeah. each and how how are these characters related over here. Mm -hmm. You know, how do they relate to one another? Yeah. And how's that going to play out? Right. The names are jaw-cracking. Um, <laughs> you know, the, this sort of, uh, let's put 16 consonants in a, a group, and then all the vowels are at the end of the beginning, uh, cowering in terror. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. And he, he did try to create a language for the for the book. And, and to some extent, so did Andre Norton. But no one can match Tolkien. Yeah, uh, that's in, true. In terms of language creation. That's true. <clears throat> there has been so many uh, films and stuff that have delved, delved into magic and the occult. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to see a lot of that play out. And we're probably going to be talking about that in the next okay. segment. So are you thinking like not fantasy magic, not wizards and dragons, but magic like Constantine or? Um... Actually, one of the ones I wanted to uh, touch upon, Constantine would be one I hadn't thought of, but mm -hmm. Constantine would be a good idea. For uh, the next segment, what I wanted to do was talk about the Hammer film, The Devil Rides Out. <laughs> yes, please. Sorry. <laughs> really, really good film. And I, I say right now, be on the lookout because we probably will go off on a tangent because yes. Hammer Films. Yes, this is true. And Christopher Lee this is true. and all the things in between. But for right now, I thought what we would do is since we are pressed for time in this segment was I was going to go ahead and cut it uh, for now. Okay. And then... Mm -hmm. We'll be right back in just a moment with our second segment. So stick around. You're listening to Couch and Coffee Table. Welcome back to Couch and Coffee Table. This is our second segment. And I am uh, wanted to lead off with just putting a, a, a pin in the discussion. Uh, in the break, Michael and I determined that we're not really going to tackle in this episode discussions of uh, films like The Omen or The Exorcist or The Nun um, for the simple reason that that is a very specific type of uh, magic use in film, and mostly it's like the devil TM. Uh, so it's, it's like going to your local 7-Eleven and you need a plot device. So you find the can of the devil on the shelf and that's a pretty reliable brand. So you crack it open, you spill it all over your script and huzzah, there's your reasoning. It's the devil. Um, yeah, you can pick up a different can here and there. It could be ghosts. It could be 
uh, it's really a Native American big graveyard that they desecrated. Ta-da, you get poltergeist. Um, kind of a different style of magic and film, and we'd like to cover that at another time. Um, Absolutely. So that brings us to what we finished up with on our last segment, which is The Devil Rides Out. Yeah, um, wanted to start in with that, and uh, I do want to talk about Constantine just a little bit, and I also mentioned uh, during the break that we would talk about uh, The Raven, a Roger Corman film starring Vincent Price, Peter Lorre, and Boris Karloff, but we'll get to all that. Uh, the Devil Rides Out, I liked the use of magic in it. It's more darker magic, and you can there is a fine line and much like what heather was saying i i don't want to spend a lot on just the devil because we could do we could do two or three at least two shows on just discussing the devil in cinema because he's been there. there there's like a laundry list of films that we could put together for that the devil rides out a lot of it isn't so um the devil is almost an afterthought it feels like it, it's more about the evil head of the cult and everything uh makata makata i wanted to make sure i was saying that right i was going to ask you and of course the good point of light and our hero in this which is Dwishlu. Christopher Lee in one of his rare, like leading man roles. He's yeah. And he, he absolutely rose to the challenge yeah. and, you know, yeah. very much could have been a leading man, but too often he, he did it. He was a magnificent villain. Oh yes. Yes. This, this is, uh, so the devil rides out is one of my favorite films, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but, uh, just, yeah, by all means, take point on it. Because oh. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we have we have covered it before, but it also we brings have. me in mind of the Wicker Man and the magic system there, because of course Christopher Lee is Lord Summer Isle. Yes, yes. And Edward Woodward is, is the would-be police officer that shows right. up and just yes, he's such a putz, uh, but he's designed to be a putz, and and that's the nice thing about this film is that he is on paper he's our hero. You know, he's, he's the constable coming to investigate yeah. this, the missing child, and he's all very proper, and yeah, uh, he's a stuffed shirt, and he's just, he's thoroughly unlikable through the whole film. The actor does a brilliant job with it, and um, he finds himself on this island of uh, completely unrepentant pagans who are being pagan all over the place, and, uh, you know, they're naked, and they're they're having sex, and they're drinking, and they're carousing, and he is just appalled, because this is not done. And um, Christopher Lee as Lord Summer Isle is gregarious, and likable, and uh, also part of a conspiracy to immolate this, this police officer alive. And you're not mad about it, <laughs> which is is really the interesting thing about it and uh i think the first time you see it you're shocked yes yeah you're I saw very it. shocked i saw it when i was a kid and i didn't really understand because as a, as a child the movies i was used to seeing the bad guys won in in that parlance and as an adult 
watching it now, I, I can catch the subtleties a little better. And I'm like, yeah, I understand what's going on. This is a fantastic film. I'm really amused. Um, this, this police guy really does make his own bed, so to speak. Yeah. And, and at every chance he's given to step aside from the fate that waits him, he doesn't take it. And I mean, these are obvious choices. Like, you know, here's, here's the right fork of the road, sunshine, happiness, bunnies, freedom, and love. Here's the left side of the road, doom, bloom, certain death. And he's like, hitches up his pants and goes down the left side every time. And that's actually laid out pretty clearly um, when he is, uh, he's at the end of his road and people are explaining to him what has been going on this whole film. So highly recommended. Uh, I've never seen a remake with um, Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. So I, I, I can only strongly recommend the original. Um, I've heard mixed reviews about the Nick, Nick Cage film. Uh, apparently there are bees involved. So um, with The Devil Rides Out, uh, you've got an occult magic system. You've got Cardinal de Richelieu fighting for the soul of his friend. Um, it's based on a book. I've read the book. Uh, the book was written in the 1920s, so... Um, yeah, Count de Wishlew, and um, just... He's worried about his friend who... There, his... The, I forget the uh, the character name of the Simon, young man. Simon is the yes. young man in Paris. Simon is the young man, yes. Simon is canonically Jewish, and this comes in... Like, this comes into play at some point. There, there is a point to that. Okay. Um, and then there's uh, there's a, a Richard, I think, is one of the other gentlemen. And then, yes. Um, the, the fourth gentleman's name escapes me. Uh, but it's you know it's it's full of daring do and car chases and telegrams because it's the 1920s. So um, yeah, they go all, all over the world and and back in in pursuit of uh, breaking up this satanic cult leader named Makata. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's the devil, and he shows up. And uh, I've not read the book, but it always, yeah. from your description yeah. of it, of the times we've talked a little bit about it, it always felt like it had more of a James Bond, yes, Ian Fleming style absolutely. of writing to it. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Dorishlu has all the gadgets, and the cars, and the money to do this. So, okay, so he's yeah. a little bit like Bruce Wayne in that respect in the books. Yeah, a little more suave, like Bond. Okay, but, so uh, combination Bond yeah. and yeah. Bruce Wayne. Yeah, he's, he's absolutely got the breeding and money to do all the things that he does, and, and the knowledge. Um, on the tack of the occult, um, I had also thought of a movie called The Ninth Gate, which is, uh, it's got Johnny Depp in, and a director I do not like or support. Um, so I will not mention him, but uh, I saw this a number of years ago before I was really boycotting that particular director's films. <laughs> there is my excuse. Ha. Uh, but anyway, it's uh, Johnny Depp's character is looking for a rare book, supposedly with a ritual to summon the devil. And that's your setup. And then uh, he meets a bunch of people and a bunch of things happens and he thinks he's going crazy and maybe he is. And we're not entirely sure, and it's kind of spooky, and it's kind of creepy, and it's it's well done. Um, mm, okay. Whatever the whatever the controversy around Depp is, 
he is a good actor. And yes, he does a he good is. job embodying this particular character. Um, so there's, you know, there's the usual tropes in an occult film. There's the, the MacGuffin object you're looking for. It's usually a book or a seal or a, a statue or a dagger. And there's people trying to get it before you do. And, and the end of the world is at stake or your soul or the devil uh, shows up. Uh, there's, your, there's your can of devil. Yeah. Um, <laughs> tinned devil. Yeah, you have, <laughs> you have a little bit of appearances here and there of, if not so much the devil, then mm-hmm. a representation of right, the devil. Right. And the devil rides out. I, I also wanted to, um, one of my favorite lines in it, and I believe it's yours as well, is whenever uh, Makata comes to the house oh, yes. of uh, uh-huh. the one, uh, the, there's a setting in which he comes to the house and he puts a woman in a trance so that he can better manipulate and control. And there's a point when the spell is broken. And whenever it is broken, as he's leaving, one of the lines he says is, I won't be back, but something will. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, the actor who does does the line is, is a brilliant job. I do want to note that the actor that is Makata in this is Charles Gray, mm-hmm. who is known as the criminologist for those of you who are Rocky horror fans. And he had a, he's been in a couple of James Bond films yeah. and he was Bofeld in one of them. I believe he was Bofeld in diamonds are forever. Yeah. I think you're right. He does a good job. Does a good job being a front and center bona fide villain, uh, suitably creepy, yeah. well filmed. Um, we also wanted to touch on Constantine. Yes. And uh, I'm speaking particularly of the Keanu Reeves film that came out. Oh, mumble. I don't, I don't remember when it came out. Uh, it was a couple years back. Um, if you're going to look that up, I will continue on by saying that I love that there has been a lot more done with Constantine in terms of uh, DC's. DC slash Warner Brothers and in film. Uh, he's He got a short-lived series. I think it only ran for like two or three seasons. Live action, really good. Um, he was in one of the uh, Dark Universe DC uh, cartoons here and there. Yes. And uh, I think they've done at least a couple like that. And I've enjoyed the direction that that has gone. Um, personal note and it's just an opinion of mine i'd like to see more with the uh character dead man okay because i used to have the origin uh comic it was a it was okay. a little yeah it was a paperback i had a lot of origin comics in it reproduced yeah. and i had the first yeah. issue of dead man in that and it was mm-hmm. it was interesting because here is a guy that started out he didn't care about nobody but himself in this circus and he was killed. And right afterwards, he wanted to avenge his own death and he's able to jump from body to body and manipulate that way. And I would like to see a little bit more about him because it's in reading the comic as a kid, I, I was reading it and thinking to myself, this could be such a simple movie 
in terms of effects yeah. and everything. Yeah, that concept has legs. You know, it can go really far. Like you're you're investigating the thing, and suddenly, if you know, ten year old walks up with a head trauma, and that's that's your <laughs> yeah. He's just jumped into that body. Yeah. I'm like crap. Okay, let's let's get yeah. blood off you. And, <laughs> and um, I think I, I can't remember the name of the film exactly, but there was a character like that in a kind of a serial killer mode. And the movie starred Denzel Washington. I believe the movie was called Fallen, mm -hmm. in which he was after this killer, but the killer had a way of jumping from body to body. Mm, okay. And so he he didn't know who he was chasing. Right. Because it could right. be anybody. Yeah. It, it was him against the world yeah, at that point. That's a good that's a good writing tool. Because if, if you aren't constrained by that, then you can do a lot of things. Yeah. The um, Keanu Reeves film was 2005. Okay. And there are rumors of bringing Keanu back for another film as yeah. Constantine. So that's that's yeah. been popping up. I first encountered the character in the Sandman comics. That was my first introduction to Constantine. Oh, okay. Because he shows up, um, I forget in what issue of Sandman, but... Um, he has to work with Dream uh, in regards to a particular situation. Of course, Constantine is very familiar with the occult and the devils of hell. And uh, Dream has to deal with hell quite a bit uh, in, in parts of the story arc of the Sandman, which I've not seen the Netflix series, but uh, lots of people have loved it. Which one uh, was it? Sandman. Oh, the Sandman. Yeah, yeah I was just... I'd like to. I'd like to see that. It's one of those that I, I we yeah. don't. I don't think we have. It's, it's either on Netflix or Hulu. Yeah, we don't have a full collection of the books, so yeah. I, I can't. But the library does, and I, I think I'd mentioned to you before the 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 trouble that I have with them is that they're done by all different artists and colorists. Yeah. So for me, the quality of art varies kind of widely. Yeah. Even in like a collected bound volume of like here's your season yeah. of mists, and maybe that was six or eight you know issues of the comic uh, on newsstands, and now it's bound in one volume, but it's got six or eight different artists, and um, yeah, that can be a little jarring. It can be. I mm -hmm. I've got some issues of comics here and there mm -hmm. where they've got various stories mm -hmm. and. You've got various writers, but you've also got various illustrators. So yeah. you run in four or five pages mm -hmm. and it's this artist, yeah. you know, this this illustrator mm -hmm. and this writer and the story's going along. But then you get to the second story wow. and all of a sudden mm -hmm. the. Yeah, everything changed. Yeah, the artwork is completely changed. The direction mm -hmm. is changed and it can be a little jarring going from literally one page to the next. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is very much the my experience of Sandman. Uh, still worth it because it's Neil Gaiman and yeah, um, yeah, he does absolutely uh, hollow out my gut and kick my heart down the street. But um, I still I still go back. Uh, he is a brilliant writer. Emotional damage. <laughs> he is a brilliant writer. Uh, so that, that was my introduction to Constantine. And that's that's the image I took with me into the Keanu Reeves movie. 
And as we've talked about before, I do like Keanu Reeves. I think he's a good actor. I like what he's done with a lot of his things. Um, and my introduction to Keanu was, of course, Bill and Ted, and he is a goofy-ass teenager, and he does that really well. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, let's see, we've gone through occult magic films. Um, we didn't touch on the Raven yet. Oh, yes, please. Absolutely. One of Which, our favorites. One of our favorites. Well, it's Vincent Price, so naturally it's it's going to be and a fave. Boris Karloff and Peter Laurie and... A young Jack Nicholson. Yes. A very young Jack and Nicholson. And Hazel Court. Hazel Court's in there. So... Which Hazel Court usually stepped in for a lot of different things. I, I think she worked beside Christopher Lee, Vincent Price. She might have also did. I I would have to check her filmography mm -hmm. to double check myself. But I, every time I've seen her in a movie, either the Roger Corman stuff. I think she's done some Hammer. I yeah. think she's done some. Uh, well, she's just done a lot. Yeah. Um, but she's always she's always really good, and she yes. always delivers. But um, the Raven is an interesting film because if you look at it now, post Harry Potter, it feels like all of these wizards or magic practitioners could very easily this this feels like an offshoot of Harry Potter. It's it's weird because it feels like a prequel. Yeah without having anything to do with Hogwarts or Harry Potter, but you could squint yeah. and someone could probably write and bridge a gap between that story and well, it's, the it's, wizarding world it's, very easily. It's wizards in a guild, first off. So yeah. I, I think it's better than Harry Potter because it, it, it does like historically predate them, like in terms of when the film was made. Yeah. The film is set in an era that historically predates Hogwarts and it's a comedy as well as just a good, a good film romp. Yeah, um, it is. It, there, there's a lot of fun to it. The magical effects are good. Yeah, um, they stand up well. They stand up well. It was done in the sixties, late sixties, early sixties, early sixties. Okay. So they this, still stand up well. Yeah. This, this happened like between 62 uh, and 64. Yeah. Uh, Peter Laurie turns into a bird. It works. Yeah, that, that's our introduction to him. He uh, is turned into a bird because of stuff. And he ends up wandering, just being abrasive and getting into an argument with another wizard. The wizard gets mad and turns him into a bird. He then goes and meets up with Vincent Price's character. All the spoilers are about to happen, so... Uh, well, you can, you you know. can rain in some, but I, I do want to... I do want to point out that one of the, my favorite parts of the film is the relationship between Peter Lorre's character and uh, Jack Nicholson's character. Yeah, they are father and son, and there's a point whenever... Um, go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> um, the the send-up is that Lorre is a complete drunkard and abusive when he's drunk. He absolutely loathes his son. And his son is embarrassed by his father but still loves him and wants him to do well and wants to make him proud and also is is looking after his dad as much as he can and wants to get him back home to their his mother uh, his father's wife obviously 
And so the two pick at each other the whole film. And it is hilarious to see Jack Nicholson being a little ashamed of his dad and, and kind of trying to set his clothing to rights and Peter Laurie snarling at, at Nicholson and slapping away his hands. And it's, it's brilliantly played and uh, just, just one of my favorite parts of the film. And uh, Boris Karloff is, is phenomenal. Every, Vincent Price is wonderful. They, they choose scenery between them. They do. They and do. It's great. <laughs> it is absolutely great. This is, this is a good comedy. Um, it's one of it's one of my favorite films. The the effects are good, as you said, and the battle between the two wizards is just fun, and mm -hmm. it's done in absolute camp style. I mean, it, if you if you're going to allow your kids to watch Harry Potter, then you shouldn't be afraid of this film. It's absolutely. It's absolutely one of those. In fact, it's it's got a much more lighter, broader tone yeah. than some yeah. of the darker sides of Harry Potter. To yeah, be perfectly honest, there's no Voldemort here. There's there's just excuse me. Uh, your your villain is is uh, a bit slimy, a bit duplicitous. I don't want to give any spoilers. Um, your heroes are a little inept. Isn't Tor what's his name in this film too? Isn't he the the coachman? He might be. He yeah. might be. What is his name? Something. Oh, famous actor, why can't I remember? <laughs> uh, I was going to say that there's there's a uh, Tor Johnson. Tor Johnson. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, I know that I was I was trying to think of some other things that I wanted to mention besides the Raven, but now. I'm I'm not too sure. I, I'm sure I can think of something. I'll just need a couple of minutes to uh, break on that. But I'm looking up Tor and I'm trying to find his filmography to see if he was in the Raven. Okay, okay, but I did enjoy the Raven, and um, he doesn't appear to be okay. Um, so it must have been. It must be somebody else. Okay, because his last film was 1968, something called Head. And he's uncredited. He's a guard. Uh, he was in the Beast okay. of Yucca Flats, which we've seen a number of times because it's, yeah, a couple it's of in times. our MSTK. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He was in Night of the Ghouls in 59, Plan 9 from Outer Space in 57. Yep. Um, as a kid, I think I got him confused with Bella Lugosi in that film. Really? Yeah, because huh. I, I didn't know. Uh, as a child, I always thought Bella looked like Dracula, like ubiquitously. Whatever, whatever Bella Lugosi okay. was doing, he looked like Dracula. And so I think somebody was trying to point him out on the screen, and I got confused because uh, Tor was there, and Tor is, I think, one of the main baddies in that particular film. Now, one of the things I will mention, just as kind of a counterpart, kind of a flip side of the coin, as far as Vincent Price films, is um, with The Raven, you have him as a wizard and a practitioner mm -hmm. of magic, versus him as Witchfinder General, who is very oh. anti-magic and very, very I dubious. I don't think I've seen that film. Very deceitful I, man. Yeah, I don't know that I will. It's, it's, it's a heady film. Yeah, it's really, really, it's, it's dark. But going into that, uh, just kind of an honorable mention of Witchfinder General. Mm -hmm. um, spinning off of that, there's also The Crucible, mm -hmm. in which... You know, 
that one isn't so much about the actual magic practiced mm -hmm. as so much so so much scapegoating happened yeah yeah and but that's also going into history and everything yeah yeah i, I would mm -hmm. i would file that into a different category of film altogether yeah yeah it's not really about magic at all it it's um, not and but i i did want to mention mm -hmm. witchfinder general because yeah. it's the flip side mm -hmm. of what vincent price gives you in the raven and yeah. then yeah. years of uh, some years later he does well, witchfinder general and I mean, completely different we could put another pin in the conversation there because for all the you know here's the can of the devil that you find on your local corner store you can find a can labeled the church yeah and you can absolutely find films and stories and anime where the church is a monolith and it's it's usually catholic with secret societies thrown in yeah um is is your source of magic for the for the film is your source of mythos uh usually they find like we're, michael and i are reviewing a witch hunter robin lately so um that absolutely revolves around uh sort of a secret society inside the church kind of yeah parallel to it yeah. clandestine operations witchcraft and for that for that anime uh, magic is is hereditary and um you are born a witch or you're or you're awakened to the the potential of witchcraft in your blood and um that uh that isn't so much an aberration or the devil it's uh sort of the next evolution of humanity kind of uh -huh. <laughs> um but actively suppressed by the church because we can't have people going around you know doing telekinesis and setting things on fire um so yeah we, we, when we originally talked about this subject, one of the things you wanted to touch on was the concept of magic, um, stage magic. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was curious to see how you were going to weave that into, because absolutely there are a number of films where the character is a, a, a magician. And so his sleight of hand, um, usually these are heist shows yeah like yeah we have we've got leverage or we've got um used to be something called mr wizard or something it was like 70s 80s okay show i'm, I'm drawing a blank barely remember it i had a, a friend uh, years ago who who would talk about it every now and then it was from his childhood he could never really clearly explain it to me or like we tried looking it up and uh, somebody was always yelling, Mr. Wizard, get me out of here. Uh, maybe there was a time machine. Mm, I'm not okay. sure. Uh, sci again, science, technology is magic. Yeah. We've touched on before. Yeah, I'll <sighs> definitely try and work that in uh, for the next segment. For mm -hmm. right now, I'm going to have to cut this right now as okay. we're getting ready to come up on the half hour mark. And so we're going to take just a quick break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Couch and Coffee Table. Stay with us. Welcome back to Couch and Coffee Table. This is our third segment. Thanks for sticking with us. 
uh, I wanted to uh, talk about stage magic and stuff like that in terms of magicians and things of that nature um, in cinema because there, there's been two or three films done and uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, we were collecting information uh, before we started recording this segment there is a series called I believe The Magician Yes, just simply The Magician and I think it aired for only one season mm-hmm. 73 to 74 and it stars Bill Bixby, who my generation would know more so as David Banner, the Incredible Hulk, or Apple Dumpling Gang, or any number of things. Older generations would know him more probably from My Favorite Martian, or something right. along those lines. But for one season, he was this magician. Uh, I'm going to pass it to Heather real quick, because she has the information in front of her. So, From the Wikipedia article, uh, it starred Bill's Bixby. Bill Bixby as stage illusionist Anthony Tony Blake, a playboy philanthropist who uses his skills to solve difficult crimes as needed. In the series pilot, the character was named Anthony Dorian. The name was changed later due to a conflict with the name of a real-life stage magician. Um, so this article is about 45 minutes per episode. The, pl- the pilot is 70 minutes. Um... It has 21 episodes. They do give a brief episode guide. Mark Hamill is in episode four, apparently, and Michael remembers Rod Serling being in an episode, but I wasn't able to find him in the cast list right away. Uh, Reception, it was, um, looks like it had an average uh, audience Nielsen rating of 16.9, ranking at number 52 out of the 81 shows for that particular season. So it did fair to middling, but it, it didn't make it past the first season. I don't recall ever seeing this, but um, seeing uh, the picture of Bill in costume, um, probably if it went into uh, syndication at any point, I might have. Yeah, if they, if they put it on uh, even just like a marathon or what yeah. have you, I think we'd have better luck finding it now if someone put it on a streaming service. Right. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, like I was I was born in '74, so uh, this was before my time, but not by a lot. Yeah, I oh. I probably would have been three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you were so, able to catch it a little better than I was. Yeah, it's about the same with the Barnaby Jones. I remember that a little bit more clearly, and that would have been something right around that same time period. Right. I think that kicked off like in '73. Yeah, but um, with the magician. I haven't seen any of the episodes, and I'll be the first to say that. I first heard about it because I saw a, a still of Rod Serling running a magic shop, and he had a goatee and everything. He looked very 50s coffeehouse beatnik, to be perfectly honest, but they, they put some talismans on him and everything, and so, you know, you could have, you could have taken off the goatee Great up the sides of his head, and he would have been, or kept the goatee, and he would have been Doctor Strange. Nice. Which would have been interesting to see Serling be Doctor Strange. Yeah. But there's a proverb that's uh, the devil is the devil because he's very old. And it seems to me that the wisdom that comes from observing people for a very long time was probably what Serling had. Yeah. And so he would he would make an excellent devil. Yeah. Um, because he understands human nature. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the Twilight Zone, the original, is just very, very founded in human 
humans mm -hmm. responding to things as humans. And yeah. uh, sometimes there's there's a bit of a, you know, nothing terrible happens to good people in the Twilight Zone, but occasionally occasionally some awful things happen and then you're like, yeah. this, is, this is terrible. Um, touching on the topic of, of magic as uh, advanced tech. Okay. Um, there are two corny, corny examples that I immediately thought of. Okay. When we were talking about this, and and I I, I kind of wanted to surprise you with them because I okay. wanted to see your face. All right. <laughs> so the first I would I would have to point out would be MacGyver. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So All it's right. it's science. Right. Everything he does is based in science, but it's this problem solving. What's he going to pull out of his hat? Um, you know. <laughs> Scientific magic. Yeah. Because you know he can redirect lasers and he does yeah. chemistry and you know all this jazz. Um, the other is the A team. If if you want a heist show, you've got a bunch of guys with a bunch of skills that, as it's pitched in the series, like normal and I use air quotes, normal people who are not military trained do not have. So inevitably, uh, for reasons of plot device, um, the bad guys will will stick the A team in like. Uh, an entire barn full of things like welding torches and <laughs> plenty of scrap metal and like the body of a working car and not expect anything to happen. And of course they build a tank and drive over everyone. Um, yeah. But it's a, with the magician's stage magic, every example I can think of usually revolves around the, the pitch of here is a person with skills that are unusual. Mm -hmm. Uh, often revolving around uh, powers of observation yeah and um the sleight of hand the misdirection comes into play or the the knowledge that normal like normal again yeah people might not have to solve a complicated problem so here's bill bixby here's macgyver here's the a-team yeah all solving these weird problems we we talked about the show leverage we did and, and Leverage is a really good show. I always felt like it was a combination of Mission Impossible and the A-Team. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a heist. It's a heist show. You've got a, a, a team of people who do their job really well. Uh, much like Mission Impossible, they're usually discovered. They built that in. So, you know, there's a cliffhanger between commercials where you're like, oh, no, the jig is up. The Mark found out about them. Gas. Yeah. Um, and then you find out that's just one layer of the the con they're doing uh it's usually yeah. to help some poor unfortunate soul yeah and uh it's a good series and I excellent like it. series i and love I it i have not seen the uh they came back to it and, and did another one but they, not yeah they did a tv movie i haven't seen that either yeah. i've been dying to mm -hmm. and i'm i'm hoping to very soon i remember very clearly the um to get them back on the air for uh, season six, there was a letter writing campaign and the name of it was Let's Go Steal Season Six. <laughs> nice. Which if you're familiar <laughs> with the series, usually if they needed a, pivot, a pivotal thing mm -hmm. for them to be able to pull this off, you know, like we need to get a stadium to do this. Usually the leader of Leverage would look at everybody else and go, okay, let's go steal a stadium. Let's go steal a baseball team. Let's go steal, you know, yeah. something big and huge because, you know, of course, let's go steal it. Nobody's going to miss it, you know. 
That's impossible. Let's do yeah. it. Yeah. Exactly. It before lunch. Um, exactly. So in this case, the the thievery is the magician's trick. Yeah. And absolutely, it works for that series. But yeah, I think I think you can do that with any kind of magic system, any kind of magic user. All the systems we talked about, all the characters and the worlds we've talked about. Magic is the either the special skill or it's the trick. It's the magician's trick. It's the sleight yeah. of hand. It's picking your pocket while I'm waving the handkerchief in your face. And if you could pull that off in any writing, I mean, that, that's Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Holmes is, yeah. is sprawled with his nose in the carpet and Watson is observing going, Egad, man. <clears throat> and then later Conan Doyle pulls back the curtain a little bit and lets you see why Holmes was had his face in the carpet. Um, and it's usually yeah. some ridiculous thing, like he spent 15 years studying the different cigar ash of like every major brand from yeah. you could buy in London, which is, is ludicrous, but very Batman, because Batman yeah. pulls this stuff too. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, and that's built into some of the, some of the comics where, you know, Bruce Wayne has Alfred go buy every major brand of cologne so he can learn the scents, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of room with the concept of magic as a storyteller, as a writer, as a, a producer, as a stage person. There's a lot of legs in that particular concept. And if you can manage, you can write yourself out of some very tricky spots, which is why I'm so yeah. frustrated a lot of times when they bump up against something. Um, the most recent bone of contention is is the debacle with Lieutenant Commander Data, because they could have pulled a Doctor Who with him. Data is an android. The actor is getting older and more reluctant to put on the gold paint because he's like, I'm supposed to be changeless and I am changing. Um, Brent Spiner is a great actor, but they could have they could have essentially rebuilt Data and had him change to a different actor. And yeah. with all the justification of my body was damaged or I wanted to upgrade or I wanted to try something new, um, any number of reasons yeah. other than killing off a character. And then you could also build in the, the thing in Doctor Who where when the Doctor regenerates, he's always a little confused and then he's a different person every time he regenerates or she yeah. regenerates. Um, so you give the new actor or actress the ability to find his or her feet in the role. Yeah. And you yeah. still tell those stories. The doctor still has the sonic screwdriver, still has the TARDIS, still has all of the knowledge of the many lives that, that they've lived. But now they're in this new body and you can focus on that and the limitations in that character. And you can do that for a magic system because I think you need limits in a magic system for Harry Potter, you have to have a wand unless you're a magical creature yeah. or um, the wheel of time. It's, it takes toll on your energy for other systems. It might be actively killing you or you forget your spell after you cast it. Um, or if it's uh, the occult, you have to kill something to, to get a spell to yeah. work. There's gotta be blood involved. Um, or, you know, Simon King of the witches, is it is yeah. a film with a magic system like that? Yeah, yeah. That um, another really good film that I I had forgotten about that I was uh, now I wanted to touch on a little do. bit more. 
uh, I didn't want to cut you off. No, I'm good. Okay. I'm kind of wrapping up and I'm summarizing a little bit. Okay. But there's room there's room to talk about this because it's a good film and you know it better than I do. Yeah, Simon King of the Witches. Uh, before I get into that, I just want to double back real quick and say with leverage, one of the things they have in their arsenal, which leads into uh, some of the other magician films that I wanted to talk about, is that one of the uh, biggest things that you find, not just in Leverage, but also in The Illusionist. Yes. Now You See Me, Now You Don't, parts one and two. Yep. The Prestige. Yes. All of these films have one very important thing along with Leverage. And that is the biggest thing that a magician has in his arsenal. Misdirection. David Bowie? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Completely different sort of magic. <laughs> Dance magic. Sorry. Uh, That's okay. Uh, misdirection is probably the biggest thing. And you see that in a lot of the episodes of Leverage. They do a magical... They, they, they actually do a magic act for yes. a big uh, a big firm. And uh, I won't go too much into it just because I don't want to I don't want to ruin it, but they pull it off very easily. And a lot of that is these these five people are constantly doing misdirection with whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. Whatever job it is that they're on, there's going to be misdirection because there has to be. Uh, with the illusionist, sort of smaller, but the magic elements and the effects on the magic tricks, very well done. And overall, you think it's heading one one direction, and it's actually heading another. And by the end of it, well, that but this that's also a classic for all the films that I'm talking about. You and even you touched on that just for a moment whenever you said that you know in some of the leverage episodes, it's going one way right. and they're discovered, or this cliffhanger right. commercial, and then come back and they work through it. Yeah. And that's that's just stereotypical of drama. This is me backpedaling, covering my butt. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's there's a lot of elements with all of these that it's misdirection, and it proves to be really good heist, and you never know what's going on. Prestige isn't so much in the same vein as Illusionist and Now You See Me, Parts 1 and 2, or Leverage. But what it does have is an interesting... It has an interesting ending to it. Yes. It's It's got some... All of these have, by the mm -hmm. way, really good actors and actresses. Yeah. I mean... The Illusionist and The Prestige came out around the same time. They did. And so they're similar. They're similar stories where uh, stage magicians are competing against each other in 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 the world, basically, to, to do... Sorry. The Prestige has two magicians who end up competing against one another uh, because of an unfortunate accident that happened with a wife of one of the magicians. They part a company and they're competing with one another. With the illusionist, what happens is, is that the illusionist was a young boy. He fell in love with this girl and he ends up coming back around after becoming a very famous illusionist. And they start to have a not so much a romantic relationship, but they're very excited about being around one another again. And mm -hmm. it starts to bloom into more and more romantic. Mm -hmm. She is married to a very jealous man who is also part of a royal line. 
And mm -hmm. so he's got to walk a very thin line because yeah. of that. Uh, because both of them dealt with magic and came out at the same time, you know, you have, they were compared to one another because it's just like, oh, another magician movie. But both had very good actors and actresses in it. Uh, the Illusionist has Edward Norton and Jessica Biel. And The Prestige has uh, who's who. Uh, it's got Christian Bale. It's got Hugh Jackman. It's got Scarlett Johansson. It's got Michael Caine. It's got, you know, it's got David Bowie. It, that, it does have David Bowie. Yes. <laughs> who plays Tesla. Huh? It's perfect. Sorry for the spoiler there, but it, it's, it's, it's... He's perfect in the role. He's absolutely perfect. He does a wonderful job of it. And also one of the things that when you watch Prestige, if you're a Bowie fan, or even if you're not even a Bowie fan, when he's in frame... He steals the show. And I don't think he meant to, but he, no, he does. He just does. It's David Bowie. He's that's what he does. Yeah. <laughs> that's indelible Bowie there. You can't you can't separate that from the man. He yeah. always he is always center stage. And I I've liked a lot of his acting roles. Um this is a little divergent here, but I really enjoyed him in the hunger. Um he does a phenomenal job in that film and allows himself to be on screen in a very vulnerable and ugly light. Interesting. I, I've not seen that. Everybody's been wanting me to see that. You've not seen that. The Hunger? I have not. No. You're, you're probably saying the same <laughs> thing that people listening are saying the same thing. Because it's it's been over the years, a lot oh of people my. have mentioned to me, you know, you okay. should see it. Oh my goodness. Um, dude, I don't know if we have a copy. I, I saw it a couple years we, back. We don't. We might check the library yeah, or something. I thought, um, I thought I saw it. I thought, I, woof. Okay. So, well, shocking well, revelation on couch and coffee table. Um, yep. Yeah, that's a, that's a good vampire film. It's a very good vampire film. And I am very interested to see what you think of it when we finally get around to watching it. Um, um, it'll go on the list of films we need to watch. There was another, uh, there was another magician. Uh, I may have you look this up because you're faster. Okay. There was another magician, uh, okay. TV series that was done in the mid eighties. And much like the magician with Bill Bixby, this didn't have that long of a run either. I forget the name of it, but, um, it has Hal Landon who played Barney Miller as the main character in it and it he's he's a magician and the interesting part about it is it also has harry morgan as his father how landon how landon landon l-a-n-d o-n i think but he um it's it's a really interesting uh show which i am blanking on the name but i as a little kid i did watch some of these episodes Hollander Jr. Uh, but you know, we'll. Is, is it Jr. or is it? No, it's. Okay. Um, oh, get back up to the. Yeah. Sorry, uh, yep. I was not doing a good job finding the. Oh, thing. that's okay. Uh, we'll probably touch on it here in a second. We're going to cut this short 
just so we can uh, double check this real quick as I'm I'm blanking on what else to say. Yeah, we've got like almost 10 minutes. So let's, okay. uh, let's keep talking about it. Um, talk about the hunger real quick while oh, I look oh, this up. Okay. All right. Um, talk, talk some more Bowie. Oof. Okay. Uh, so Bowie is actually not the main character in the film. Um, but the, uh, and I don't, I don't want to spoil this. So uh, from what I recall, there is a very influential, uh, beautiful and powerful lady. I was okay. probably having you misspell it. Oh, okay. Please um, continue. Sorry. Who is um, notable in society, and she is uh, she's she's on the list of who's who. You know, if you're at one of her parties, you've arrived basically. And Bowie is her lover. Well, um, a younger a younger woman who is in a relationship with a fellow um, becomes fascinated with her, and through the course of the film, David Bowie's character gets more and more ill. And you, you learn that the, the fashionable society lady is a vampire and so is David Bowie. But <clears throat> unfortunately, um, there is a sickness that comes onto the vampire sometimes. And uh, first it starts with not being able to sleep and then he can't feed and then he just starts rapidly aging. And so on screen, you see David Bowie age about 100 years plus <clears throat> in some really, really well done special effects. Uh, and this is, I forget when the film was done, but this is pre-CGI. So um, it's, for me, it was slightly reminiscent of the Wolfman's transformation, Lon Chaney Jr. Ah, okay. Um, it's, it's kind of that fade through and he ends up looking skeletal and <clears throat> that's not the end of him in the film. There, there are other things that happen with him, but I don't want to go too deeply into it because I want you to see the film. Um, <clears throat> but it's, uh, there are parts of the film that are very raw and very sensuous. Um, it, when, when I saw it, it was introduced to me as this is an erotic sort of film uh, because sexy vampires and, and that, that sort of sex death connection yeah. that you usually have in those films. And um, it's filmed well. I, the pacing is good. The acting is superb. Um, I'm forgetting all the character names. It's been probably 20 years since I've seen it. And, and this is what stands out to me. This is what keeps uh, in mind when I think of it. Um, of course, I remember the ending, but I can't tell you. <laughs> That's all right. <clears throat> I found what I was looking for. Uh, it's called Black's Magic. B-L-A-K-E. Black. Okay. And Hal Landon in it is a magician by the name of Alexander Black, who, with some help from his con man father, Leonard, played by Harry Morgan, huh. solves mysteries that get in the way of his performances. The series aired... For a total of 13 episodes. Huh. And it basically, it, it didn't have a long run at all. It was on NBC. Uh, it was created by Richard Levinson and William Link, creators of Columbo. Huh. It was developed by Peter S. Flesher, who also uh, helped with Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> and uh, he was also the executive producer. 
uh, recurring characters. One of them was Claudia Christian, who was in uh, That Belong Five. Yeah. She played a character by the name of Lori Black. Yeah, she was Ivanova in That Five. So I think she might have been the ex-wife in okay. this, either that or a sister. Uh, but there's, it's it's an interesting show. I another one of these I haven't seen in forever, mm. and it's it's really it's really something that kind of stuck out because it was fun and nice. Okay, you know it um, it didn't last very long, but the episodes were fun. The episodes were really fun, and it wasn't so much a whodunit mm. as a how did he do it. Yeah. kind of element to okay. it and yeah, very cool. so it's it was a matter of alex black becoming a detective and also being a magician at the same time well here's here's a question for you and this this may bleed into overtime yeah the trope i'm seeing is ma uh, magician stage magicians sort of pair hand in hand with detectives and mm -hmm. solving mysteries yeah. And my question was, how much of that do you think is rooted in Harry Houdini, who had a mission to debunk uh, spiritualists in the Victorian era? There might have been a there. Historically speaking, he didn't really go after him until after his mother died, because mm -hmm. he was looking for the real deal. Someone mm -hmm. that could reach across the veil, excuse me, and be able to. Mm -hmm you know, reach across and have him be able to talk to his mother mm -hmm. from beyond the grave after she died. And very quickly, what happened was he ran into so many charlatans who he'd sit there and say, please, been there, done that. <laughs> right. I'm, I haven't done it this exact way, but I know how they're doing it because yeah. it's, it's real easy to do. I entertain people this way, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't con them. Yeah. I'm here to entertain. And mm -hmm. because of that, yeah, very much uh, later on for writing, people look at that element of Harry Houdini and say, well, that would make for a really good, you know, magician mm -hmm. turned detective. Yeah. We we can use a little bit of Harry Houdini's well, life for that. long friendship with Conan Doyle. Yeah. Uh, absolutely would play into that. Because then you've yeah. got links to Sherlock and Doyle's own interest in the spiritualist movement. And yeah. And fervent belief in the afterlife and... Uh, that one could turn tables and talk to spirits. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of legs on that idea too. And we don't mm -hmm. have them, um, which I don't think gets old because we've seen it in so many different iterations. And every time I see it, I I think, oh, good, another one of these. Um, and I'm excited about what, how it's going to unfold. And I'm interested in what's going to come into play. I like I like the mystery as well as the cleverness. Uh -huh around the solving of the mystery or how, how it's presented by the author or the actor or the production. Yeah. So um, that's a lot of fun. I mean, we, we've gone from, you know, my childhood wizards and dragons all the way through, you know, uh, sort of the murder mystery kind of adult. Yeah. Tastes. Yeah. <laughs> and there is nothing wrong with the magic and the dragons and the yeah. unicorns and all the rest. I, I love the mythical creatures as well. I, I really yeah. do. I mean, at uh, 10, Clash of the Titans came out. Uh -huh. And that was, 
that was incredible for me to see. But at that same time, I remember as a wee little kid in the seventies, uh, your your Sinbad movies yes. and your your they they re-released Jason and the Argonauts yes absolutely. to like your local drive-in and stuff mm-hmm. and seeing that or being excited to see that and end up falling asleep in the back seat and not <laughs> seeing any of it right which is what happened and you know in. but yeah we we've we've ran the spectrum there's a lot of magic to be had uh and oh, probably nice. still a lot more to be had what we're going to do right now is we're going to break for a minute and then come back with a wrap up. That's what my question was. Yeah. It, 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 so, unless of course, unless of course we come up with something else to talk about, <laughs> but stick around and hopefully we'll answer that here soon. You're listening to couch and coffee table. This is Couch and Coffee Table. Welcome back. This is our trying to wrap it up segment. Um, we're just going to touch very briefly on uh, a handful of things that we wanted to and wrapping up. I, We never got around to discussing Bell Book and Candle, a uh, movie about witches and warlocks and things that was done in the late 50s. This has Kim Novak and uh, Jimmy Stewart in it. And it also has Jack Lemmon. And Ernie Kovacs, quite a few different people in it. And it's a really good film. The weird part about this is that it takes place at Christmas time. So you have kind of a mishmash of things happening, but it's a really good love story. So Christmas time, love story, but it deals in magic. So, you know, and I'm reminded of it just because of the line at the end that Jimmy Stewart says, who's to say what magic really is? I was introduced to this film uh, in 2012 when we adopted a little cat from the local shelter who came with a shelter name that didn't seem to fit her. And so we were trying out all kinds of names and all kinds of names and the kitty would look at us and then look away and not really respond until we were watching a film and uh, we're trying out different character names from the film, uh, which was a, a Bond film because uh, yeah uh, which yeah one was it it was it has Jeffrey Holder and um, oh live and let die yes mm-hmm. that's what we were watching yeah live and so let die we're sitting on the bed and all of a sudden Michael says pie whack it and our little cat stands up trills it in walks over and smashes her face into his so I said are you kidding me pie whack it and she does the same thing to me so yep. then I had to have him explain where the name came from and it comes from this film because yeah. uh, Kim Novak's has a cat. It's a very beautiful Siamese, which our pie wacket is not uh, beautiful, but not Siamese because I am allergic. And <laughs> it's the only kind of cat I am allergic to is a, is a, is a lovely Siamese kitty. A shame because they're lovely cats and they're, they're very beautiful and chatty and I love a chatty cat. But anyhow, yep. that's what our, our pie wacket is named from is the, the witch's cat in that particular film. And the name goes back further than that, of course, but you can look yeah. that up. I wanted to briefly touch. Um, oh, oh, sorry, you're still talking. The, oh, no, it's all right. All right. I've, I've, I have can't tell so you how many times I've stepped on you that you've turned around and give me the signals and I went, I missed the signal. So it's okay. It's okay. The only other thing that I wanted to bring up as food for thought is in watching Bell Book and Candle, 
you tend to wonder how much of their interaction between both Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak inspired Bewitched. And that television series with uh, Elizabeth Montgomery and uh, Dick York. So keeping that in mind, it's, it's something that I just wanted to throw out there as kind of a little nugget to chew on if you were so inclined to do so and say how much of that was inspired and to possibly take a look at both and say there's there's elements in, in relationship wise and how they interact but just wanted to throw that out there i now pass it to you ah the baton i have it <laughs> all yours go ahead um, lovecraft there are plenty Ooh, okay. of magic systems used in lovecraft and uh, from most of the Cthulhu mythos, as it's become known, you have kind of a standard set of parameters um, dealing with the Elder Gods and uh, basically outer darkness and um, how humans contact these entities and or try to bring out about the end of the world. Uh, Lovecraft was very excuse me, very generous with his intellectual property and for a number of years allowed people to collaborate with him and write short stories set in his worlds. Um, so you get a lot of, uh, you can sometimes find collected works that he edited together and an author would submit a story set in a, a, a Lovecraft type of setting. Um, but there is one particular standout story that is is an epic, frankly. It's huge and long, and it, it takes a while to chew through. It's the dream quest of the unknown caitiff. And there's a lot of things to say about this particular thing because it's kind of a tour to force through a lot of Lovecraft's other writings. So you you get you see other characters, you you visit other places on this quest. Um, like Pikmin, Pikmin shows up, the artist Pikmin. Mm. Okay. Um, the cats uh, from the moon show up. Uh, there's a daring rescue that the cats actually perform on the moon. Um, but there's a there's a particular sh cat short story. Uh, I forget the name of it, but basically, it's a reason why all cats are sacred in this particular small town. <laughs> um, and uh, Lovecraft is, of course, very fond of cats himself. Um, and then. Uh, you know, you, you travel through the worlds in this particular story, and it's all done with the main character's name escapes me, unfortunately, going into the dream world to search for a, a fragment of a lost paradise that he's trying to find, and all the gods have fled to this particular man's idea of paradise. None of the gods can be found. <clears throat> so as he's going through this, this dreamland and dream world, he comes close to the surface a number of times, encounters Richard Pickman, encounters other people on his travels. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting situation. And I, I really wish someone could adapt it as a radio serial or a series, hmm. but um, there's such a tangle of copyright law issues surrounding Lovecraft's work that, that may take another hundred years to untangle and resolve for all I know, but it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting premise. It's an interesting story. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of magic in Lovecraft is uh, cold air. 
is a similar one uh, along with uh, the thing on the doorstep. Cool air, excuse me. Cool air. Uh, so the indomitable will of someone making arcane things possible or the cursed object enabling them to do uh, unholy things or, um, you know, connection with a mad god mm -hmm. enabling some terrible events to occur and that usually consumes the uh, character trying to control them. Um, bit on the squishy side, bit on the dark side. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, kind of dated. I think we've we've touched on Lovecraft's uh, difficulties translating into a modern reader's world uh, before. So you know, there's there's the pin in that discussion, <laughs> but um, worthwhile, I think. There's a lot. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of rich source material in Lovecraft's writing, and I I, I didn't want to pass through magic without mentioning him. I understand. Yeah. Lovecraft mm -hmm. works on a lot of different levels. Um, mm -hmm. Really good storyteller, mm -hmm. good writer. Um, I can see why he has endured. And mm -hmm. definitely with Lovecraft, I would say that we could probably do, if we haven't already, I mean, mm -hmm. we've touched loosely on him before. Mm -hmm. And I might have said it then that, you know, I can definitely see uh, inspirations of Lovecraft and yes. like Hellraiser, yes. Clive Barker's Hellraiser and absolutely. things of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just, just to cite one particular, uh, just to cite one particular source, but you know, I also like the idea that there is, there is magic in all kinds of different things. I mean, we, we could go on, uh, and talk about practical magic. Yay with Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman. Uh, that's that's a really good film in terms of magic and witchery and stuff. And it's a good film. I want to live in their house. Yeah. The Ants. Yes. Who I think it is. Jet and um, I forget the other aunt's name. Yeah, I do too. One of them is played by Stalker Channing, mm -hmm. and the other one is played by Diane. I want to say Lane, but I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right at all. But it is. It's a fun. It's a fun movie in which it deals with magic, and it deals with family, and it deals with all the the weird things that happen here and there. Diane Weist. W. Yes, Diane Weist. She was also in The Lost Boys as the mom in that for the two boys. I've actually never seen The Lost Boys. Oh, okay. Sorry. That's all right. That's all right. But good film. Uh, Adrian Quinn, I think, is in that yep. too. He is. And he's got a really good role in that. And there's, it's, again, it's a fun film. And music by Stevie Francis. Nicks and uh, Cheryl Crow. Stalker Channing, her character name is Francis, and Diane Weist is Bridget Jet Owens. Oh, okay. So the odds are Francis and Jet. Okay. But I'm sure that if we continue on for a couple more segments, I will think of tons more. And yes. so <laughs> rather than do that, I think what we need to do now is we need to come to a stopping point 
and we will have discussions like this again and we'll think of other things i'm sure and we'll come up that'll come up in other discussions somewhere but relevant to our topic for tonight but for right now uh, i just wanted to go ahead and wrap this up if you're yes. all right with yes. that good plan and uh just so i um double checking some logs here on things and because I figured that since we are coming to the end, then I wanted to make sure and double check what I wanted to say here at the end and get all the important points in it. Uh, we do appreciate you guys checking in with us, listening to the podcasts, and um, we hope you'll keep on doing that. And we hope they'll, you know, by all means, pass the word. Tell anybody you want about us. Uh, we we're we're somewhat kid friendly. I mean, there, there is the occasional swear word every so often. Swear, it, it it does. It pops out. Yeah, and we we don't mean any ill will by that. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you know, please check out some of our other episodes, as well as all the new ones that we put up. We upload Mondays and Wednesdays. And um, without any further ado, I would say this has been Couch and Coffee Table, and that's going to wrap it up for this episode. So, uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks I'm Michael Perry, and I'm Heather Perry. Thanks for tuning in, as as Heather said. And um, until next time, be good to yourself. Take care. <laughs>